Welcome. You are listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My, a bi-weekly podcast about healthcare law in the United States brought to you by the Healthcare Group at Kroll & Mooring. I am Joe Records. And I'm Pyle Nanavati. And today we will be discussing private equity investing in healthcare. For that discussion, we will be joined by Stephanie Willis and Lex Ely. Lex and Stephanie spend a lot of time working on healthcare transactions, and if you would like to know more about them and their practices, their bios will be linked in our show notes. Lex, let me, let me start with you and ask, what does it mean to invest in healthcare? What are the different ways that a private equity firm might invest in healthcare? Thanks, Joe. And there's a lot of different ways that private equity can invest in healthcare. I think a lot of the transactions that we've been working on recently include several different ways. One way that they invest is to buy providers, to buy a hospital or other healthcare provider. Another way that private equity gets involved in healthcare is by investing in a product, investing in technology that is used in the healthcare space, or perhaps investing uh, in a pharmaceutical or some other drug or some sort of treatment that would be used in the healthcare space. How have you seen that healthcare transactions differ from, obviously you've worked on healthcare transactions as well as other types of transactions. How is it that a healthcare transaction is different from a transaction involving investment in a different industry? Well, healthcare is quite different, and I, I have done a fair amount of work in both healthcare and non-healthcare transactions. And I don't think you can overestimate too much the impact that the pervasive regulatory scheme over healthcare has on how transactions are, how they're affected, how they're closed, the timing that they take, and those sorts of things. But every aspect of a healthcare transaction is different because of the regulatory overlay that exists, both at the state and the federal level. And speaking of regulatory overlay, Stephanie, can you give us a little bit of an intro on the types of areas where healthcare regulatory law becomes an issue in transactions? Sure. So often a private equity company will look at an industry or a segment of the healthcare industry and see that there's a high profit margin or there's a lot of growth in that industry and say, well, we'd like to invest in that space or work with providers in that space that need an infusion of capital or what have you, to grow or to try new arrangements. But what happens, as Lex alluded to, is that they underestimate the timing of how long it's going to take to actually review the related licenses and certifications and get guidance from the applicable agencies that issue those licenses and certifications regarding whether a transaction is okay or not. Often, they underestimate the types of arrangements that are sort of underpinning the provider's business dealings. So often we'll be advising laboratories and the laboratories have sales arrangements or other arrangements with other providers. And within those arrangements with the providers or marketing and sales arrangements, there are risks under the anti-kickback statute, the Stark law, and those are two big laws that restrict the types of financial relationships that providers may have with each other and with entities other than providers, just generally in the healthcare space. And often private equity companies underestimate the types of risks that those arrangements pose to them in their business. And that is because a lot of the enforcement related to the anti-kickback statute and the Stark law 
not only includes single damages, but penalties and possible exclusion from the federal health care program. So those are the types of risks that often get underestimated by private equity companies. All right. So why do you think a private equity company would be interested in getting into the healthcare space? It's very exciting. That's really the long and short of it. Everybody touches healthcare in some way. There's a stability component to a private equity investment in healthcare, but there's also a huge potential in terms of return on investment. And I think that I know Lex, especially with his work with innovative and early stage companies, it's it's very lucrative to private equity investors who can get in early on some really great technology or breakthrough drugs. And once the company goes public, they reap the rewards of their foresight into finding something that is innovative, new, and really something that will change healthcare in the long run. Lex, anything to add to that? No, I would agree with what Stephanie said. And I, I think from the point of view of a, an investment opportunity, Healthcare is viewed by many as being basically a recession-proof industry. Demand is not going to go down. Demand is only going to go up. There's a lot of changes going on in healthcare, a lot of which are brought about by technologies. And there are some amazing technologies that are coming out now that are saving the healthcare industry a lot of money, providing for some incredible results in treatment of patients. It's very much a changing world with lots of opportunities, as Stephanie said. So I think it is attractive for investment. And just from our own clients, I know that a lot of private equity firms and others that have not been previously invested in healthcare are looking at it very seriously. But with all of the changes, everybody's been looking at healthcare as a recession proof mode of investment. But especially if you're working with providers or even new entrance into the healthcare space, the government, particularly CMS and even Medicaid agencies, they're changing the way that healthcare is being reimbursed. So previously, you will often hear that healthcare was reimbursed on a fee-for-service basis, or you were paid for the volume of care that you provided to patients or to a population. Another common phrase is heads and beds. That's changed dramatically. We have a lot of value-based healthcare where providers or suppliers are responsible for the healthcare outcomes of patients. So if a patient actually receives care and doesn't get better, now providers are going to have to account for not for any additional care that they have to provide to actually make those patients better. So with these value-based reimbursement models, that means that the potential return on investment in healthcare is undergoing a reduction. And that's especially happening in long-term care and in acute care. So private equity investment in hospitals need to account for that. So it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it sounds like where we are now, there's a, a wider range of possible ROI for investors where the old model of, I think you said heads and beds, the old fee-for-service model is driving reimbursement less and value-based models are driving reimbursement more in a way that if an entity is able to bring something to the table in terms of value, then they have a chance of outsized gains as a result of adding that value, whereas before it was almost commoditized as a fee-for-service industry. That's right. And I think that private equity investors, often they look at a shorter term of investment in the entity that they're investing in. 
But with a lot of these value-based models, you have to have a longer range view regarding the type of value that you expect out of your investments. So for instance, the government has been in the business of doing some investing itself with the Medicare Shared Savings Program and other types of value-based models. And often they don't generate savings or quote-unquote profits until year three, four, five out of a five-year arrangement. And that's something that private equity investors should be aware of before they invest in new models of care, for instance, or new technologies, because there's a lot of upfront investment needed to get these things off the ground. And without the right business plan and without the right people at the helm actually managing the day-to-day of the company, and that's part of the due diligence of the company, really understanding the experience of the entities that will end up running the provider or the target company, that really will impact what types of ROI you'll get out of your target. So what do private equity investors need to think about in order to make sure that they can continue the target's relationships with their customers after the transaction is over? And I think that's an important question, and it's something that really, again, distinguishes the healthcare field from non-healthcare transactions. When you think about healthcare, while the ultimate customer is, of course, the patient that's providing the service, in fact, the vast majority of times that patient is not the entity that is paying the bill for the services rendered. That bill is being paid by a private insurer, by Medicare, by Medicaid, or by some other source. And so it is critical for the lifeblood of any healthcare organization to continue that flow of funding through the transaction from the very beginning, especially in a private equity situation where oftentimes the purchases are highly leveraged. So those interest payments and that debt service starts pretty soon after the deal closes. And it's important that there be no slip up and no gap in the continuing receipt of funds from the insurer or from Medicare. And so it's critical on the due diligence end of the transaction to ensure that the relationship that the entity, let's call it a hospital, has with the insurance companies and with Medicare, make sure that that relationship is good and solid, that there's not lingering liabilities there, there's not past breaches that give rise to some form of liability. And it's important that that relationship continue uninterrupted through the transaction and following the transaction. So that also means ensuring that the buyer of the hospital, if it's a new entity, has that relationship, or perhaps that instead of structuring a transaction as an asset transaction, where there is a new entity that now has the relationship with the payor, that you consider a stock transaction where there is no change in the relationship between, say, the hospital and the payor, but the hospital just has a new owner as of the date of closing. So again, comparing a healthcare transaction to a non-healthcare transaction, and when one is considering the structure of an asset deal versus a stock deal, oftentimes, in addition to the usual considerations that one has, There's also the consideration of ensuring that flow of funding immediately through the closing and after the closing. 
And Stephanie, maybe you should talk about some of the regulatory side of that and what can happen to disrupt that flow of funding, which is critical in a private equity world. Yes. Unwittingly, we've seen private equity investors say, we don't want to assume the liabilities of the owner that we're buying the entity from. So we want to reject assignment of the provider agreement and enter into whole new contracts and not assume any of the contracts that are in place. Can I interrupt the, you on yeah. the reject assignment of the provider agreement? Can you give us a little, a little bit of gloss on what that means? Providers that are participating in the Medicare program have provider agreements with the government. And those provider agreements basically are governed by regulations that state what items and services they must cover and what items and services they must be reimbursed for as they provide those items and services to patients. The problem is, is that the government takes a very strong stance that it is a privilege to participate in the Medicare program. So when a new entity wants to become a Medicare provider, they undergo a very tough diligence process where they have to disclose their owners, their indirect owners over 5%, and all of this other information related to criminal or civil penalties associated with them. So when a private equity investor is buying an entity that has already undergone that process and assumes the provider agreement, the due diligence is basically done on the part of the government and you just disclose the additional information on top of what already exists. But when you reject assignment of the provider agreement, it's basically a signal to the government that we're wiping the slate clean and you're dealing with a whole new owner or player in the healthcare space. And that means that the government has to do the whole in-depth due diligence again. And especially with hospitals, it can be very problematic because that due diligence on the part of the government involves a site visit to the facility. And that can take upwards of four to six months to get done. So we have seen transactions where the provider goes three to six months treating patients, but not being able to receive money. And that is a very high risk of basically becoming bankrupt. Right. Lex, to your point, four to six months is an awfully long time to have to pay your mortgage without that reimbursement coming in. So Lex, let's say I am one of these excited private equity investors. What's my very first step? What's the first thing I need to do? And when do I start to worry about the healthcare regulatory landscape? I think you need to start worrying about the healthcare regulatory landscape the minute you start thinking about a healthcare deal. It's, I think, in healthcare, because it is so pervasive and it is so critical to the success of the transaction and to the profitability of the venture, that you can't just do a deal and then slap the healthcare part on the end. It has to be baked into everything from the very beginning because it does affect, as Stephanie said earlier, the timing of the transaction. It potentially affects the profitability of the exercise, and it really gets to the very fundamental reasons for why you're investing in healthcare. Other big issues that private equity investors should be focused on is whether the entity has a license in the first place in front of a state agency, you know, what types of licenses they do have. Because depending on the types of licenses that the entity needs to actually operate and do business, that will dictate how long it will take for you to get approvals to change the ownership or change the entity or seek a new license for those activities. So especially with healthcare entities, they're not only engaged in the business of healthcare. Some of them have radio stations. Most of them have x-ray machines or other radiological materials. So it's very important up front to know 
what type of license entity you're dealing with and have a full list of the licenses and certifications that they have or accreditations that you will need to transfer or obtain going forward. So it sounds like you're talking a lot about the importance of due diligence up front. Lex, can you talk a little bit about how the due diligence process might be different from a non-healthcare transaction? Sure. So I think, again, the interesting thing about the healthcare space is that you certainly have all of the diligence considerations that you have in a non-healthcare deal. You've got to get to ownership of the assets, liens on the assets, whether there are environmental issues, historical employment issues, union negotiations. You know, all of that is both in healthcare and outside of healthcare. But then in healthcare, you've got this overlay of all of these other regulatory matters, such as Stephanie's been describing. And some of those can have incredibly large hidden liabilities where the entity that you're acquiring has violated the law in the past and is either under investigation or perhaps not under investigation yet, but an investigation can crop up after the closing. So it is critical to identify that too. And I think one interesting fact about healthcare transactions, speaking generally, one of the transactions that we handled recently involving a hospital, the amount of work that went into the transaction from the general corporate real estate, environmental, the non-healthcare side of the work that we did was equal to the amount of healthcare-related work that was done with respect to the transaction. So. I think that's a sort of an interesting tidbit to think about, that the amount of effort on a healthcare deal can get to twice as much in terms of the diligence, in terms of the documentation, obtaining regulatory approvals as a non-healthcare deal. Getting to the magnitude of some of those hidden risks that you alluded to, thinking about a healthcare transaction and the seriousness of some of the possible outcomes of government investigations or overpayment lawsuits or other bad outcomes when it comes to healthcare regulatory issues, is it possible that those kinds of bad outcomes could eclipse the value of the transaction? If you're asking whether some of these regulatory issues that crop up during due diligence can take a deal, the answer is yes. And that raises the whole aspect of how does an investor, any investor, private equity or otherwise, protect themselves from these liabilities? And on the front end, there's the due diligence, making sure you've turned over all the rocks, making sure you've found whatever you can find. But then it also is the indemnification that you have from your seller going into the transaction is likewise critical, as well as considering other sources of recourse for those liabilities, such as rep and warranty insurance and other ways to protect oneself. It's important in every deal. But because of the potential magnitude of risk in a healthcare deal, it's critical in a healthcare transaction. Lex, what's the key takeaway if a listener to this podcast is considering investing in healthcare? What's the one thing they should remember? The one thing that they should remember is regulatory and the incredible complexity that that adds. They should educate themselves, they should go into it with their eyes open and be careful about what they do. The rewards are potentially great if the transaction's done properly, but the risks are great as well if things don't go as planned or if they don't do their homework in advance. And I think we'll leave it there. 
Lex and Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your experience with us today. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll and Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast.